You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. But this morning we talk about a topic that is a polarizing topic. And you know, when you become a Christian, you, you come to Christ with a foundational understanding of who he is, who we are, what it means to be in relationship with God through Christ. We understand that God is holy, and that puts us in a position to understand our desperate need for a Savior. We then understand that the only way our lives can be saved is not through any work that we do, but for us trusting completely in the completed work of Jesus Christ, exercising faith and repentance that God gifts to us, and surrendering our lives to God. But what that does is begin a lifelong journey of discovery, of learning, of wrestling with who this God is that we are now in relationship with. And we realize over and over how deep and how wide and how high that God truly is. And the exercise that we take in discovering him and learning him is really this discovery of foundation and building. It's a discovery of an exercise of foundations and scenarios. And that topic that we're going to be studying this morning is a polarizing study that I've experienced throughout my Christian faith, and that is a study of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty is something that early on in most people's faith you come face to face with, but even in that initial investigation, it is polarizing. It is something as Americans with which we are not familiar. It's not part of our daily vocabulary. We discover very quickly that there are scenarios that stretch our human understanding. And it often elicits within us emotions, emotions potentially of anger, of frustration. My own journey of studying out God's sovereignty has been just that. But in the discovery of what the Bible says about it, it has laid for Sally and me a foundation that has served us well. And it's because of that foundation that I wanted to spend an entire message unpacking what it means to say God is sovereign. This topic has been a source of frustration for many who have attended our church. In fact, we have lost several people throughout the 13 years of our existence because of this topic. But what I want to do this morning is provide an exercise that will hopefully serve you well as a pattern, that as you discover topics about God, about life, about all that is going on in our world, you will follow the example of how I unpack this doctrine, but then secondly, that you'll arrive at a conclusion that is biblically defensible, because I believe if you do that, it will serve you so well practically that you will find it as one of your favorite doctrines in all of Scripture. The week that began March 4th, 2012, was a normal but busy week for the Terrell family. We celebrated our Mallory's sixth birthday and then anticipated celebrating our daughter Macy's second birthday and Sally was expecting our fourth child. And you know, as you expect a child and find out that you're going to have a, another child, there's all of these different topics that you run through. There's excitement. 
There's the realization of space limits, diapers again. For me, there was the exercise of maybe this will be a boy, and then the quick reality that it will not. (laughs) You share all of those experiences and excitements. You go to the doctor. You go through by now the routine after three of these experiences of finding out that you're pregnant, of hearing the heartbeat. But then, as you know our family, we experienced something that we had not before. And that was complications. And then the realization that week that our fourth baby was taken home to be with our Lord. Now I know as I share that, it probably elicits a lot of emotions for some of you who have experienced miscarriage. Others of you, it it prods the heartstrings of barrenness maybe, or maybe you're single and want to be married and Maybe you are a parent who has lost a child. I know that these topics can elicit emotion, but what I want to do is, in that tension, share with you the process that Sally and I took and hopefully provide encouragement to you. You see, we process that loss, as most of you would, by asking questions. Why, Lord? How did this happen? Was there sin in our life? Did we make a mistake? What, what are the lessons to learn? And we ask these questions through prayer to each other, and it seemed like the Holy Spirit provided only one answer, and that was God is sovereign. Why, Lord, God is sovereign? How did this happen? God is sovereign. What are we to learn about this? God is sovereign. I have to be honest with you, as a, at a human level, I argued with the Holy Spirit. I argued by saying, I I know God is sovereign. I've studied God's sovereignty. I've written papers on God's sovereignty. I've even preached on God's sovereignty. Holy Spirit, I don't need theology now. I need answers. But in that moment, I realized that exactly what I needed was theology, and in theology was the answer. Would you look at the big idea in your notes The big idea of this message is this, that when God's sovereignty is first understood biblically, it will contribute to a satisfied life practically. And friends, this is not just the big idea of the topic of God's sovereignty. It is the big idea of every topic of our lives, that when we first understand it biblically, then it will provide satisfaction practically. And so that's the exercise this morning. Only two points in our outline. We first are going to investigate God's sovereignty biblically. So what does it look like biblically? Is this statement, God is sovereign, biblically defensible? Because if it is not, then it is not important and not worthy of our investigation. If you were a British citizen, the topic of sovereignty would be a lot more familiar. They understand that their king and their queen are sovereign. But when we as Americans use the word sovereign, we often bring our Americanisms to our understanding. And when we say God is sovereign, we often mean that what that 
that is, is that God, because he's omnipotent and he knows all things, looks forward through the corridors of time, sees how everything is going to play out, and then exercises a knowledge over that, and that is God is sovereign. That, that's not what the Bible says when it says God is sovereign. I offer to you this definition. Sovereignty is God exercising his absolute authority by declaring all the events of human history. I mean, think about that. All of the events, all of the decisions that we make, all of the experiences that we have in life, all of the weather patterns, all of the disasters, all of the sin, everything in life in human history is declared by God to play out exactly as he ordained from eternity past. It's quite a statement. It's just God declaring it to be so, and because his authority is absolute, it happens exactly as he decreed before the foundation of the world. Now, I know this statement initially will evoke within us questions. What about sin? What about disasters? What about bad things? And we are going to be tempted to ask this question, how could a loving God dot, dot, dot? But I submit to you that many of our confusions in life about God are due to our starting with scenarios instead of the word as our starting point. Many of our frustrations with the God of the universe is because we begin with scenarios and how things play out rather than starting with the word of God. And so even in that definition, if you've not studied out God's sovereignty and you hear about God declaring before the foundation of the world all of the events of human history and you wrestle with that and that prods you like it did with me when I began studying with this because I've been on that chair. I've been in the chair where a definition like this caused me to be angry. I've been in the chair where a definition like that caused me to tune out from a message. But that was because I was focusing on scenarios and not starting with what the Word of God means and says. And so what's going to follow over the next few minutes is what Ben Arant, our worship director, said is a record-setting slide presentation. And so we're going to go through God's Word. I invite you to start out in Job 12, page 424 in the Bibles, in the seat backs in front of you. But what we are going to do this morning is provide the texts on the screen. I don't typically like to do that because I want us to exercise our, our eyes and exercise our fingers and our Bibles to, to see where these texts are in the text. And I would invite you to do that because I think the exercise is valuable. If you will underline these verses, it will serve you well as a, a reference manual for God's sovereignty. But we'll begin in Job chapter 12. And I want to read four verses. And what I'm going to do as I read these passages is tell you what these passages explain about God's authority. Job 12, verse 10, in his, God's hand, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Verse 14, if he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. Verse 15, if he we withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Verse 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. 
You can also write down Daniel 2.21. God raises up kings and he tears them down. You see, these passages explain to us that God has absolute authority. There is no authority that exists in this creation that supersedes God's authority. We'll next go to Job 14, verses 4 and 5. It says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days, man's are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Psalm 139, 16 says that our days before the foundation of the world were numbered. This describes to us God's authority over man's days. I was talking to a friend just the other day. He lives in Florida, and we were talking about weather, and he was saying that there are days when he can walk outside to get the mail where he just feels the electricity in the air, and he just prays and says, God, please keep lightning from striking me. And I told him I'm preaching on this topic, and he said, well, you know what? I guess if God's day for me is up, there's nothing I can do and nothing I would want to do. And it practically begins to help us understand, which leads into the next passage, which is Job 36, 32. <laughs> Listen to this. God covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike its mark. Really? So, so when we hear those lightning storms this spring, and we hear the thunder clap, and we hear about how power is out in our city, or how a tree was struck by lightning, Job says that God is the one who ordains where each one of those bolts strike its mark. And in this, we see that God has authority over weather. Exodus 4 and verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What a statement that is. And listen, if you have nothing but physically healthy family members, it's not as personal and as real, but this verse says that God has authority over disabilities. Judges 14, verses 2 through 4. This is the account of Samson. It says, he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Deuteronomy 7.3 says that Jews are, were not to take wives of pagan nations. Verse 3, his father and mother said to them, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Verse 4, listen to this. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. These, this passage tells us that God has authority even over foolish behavior. 
Isn't that fascinating that Samson was being so foolish, he was even being sinful, going against the law of Moses, and yet the the Word of God says those events, that motivation, that that sin, that foolishness of, of Samson was actually orchestrated by God. Next, 1 Samuel 2, verse 25. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. This passage is about Eli, the priest in the temple. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the Bible describes as evil and wicked men. And Eli says to his sons, biblical wisdom, he, he shares with them, listen, if you continue in this way, if you continue in sinfulness, there's no one that can intercede for you, but it says they would not listen to the voice of the Father, but then listen to this, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Their, their refusal to respond to biblical instruction was part of God's ordained plan. And in this we see God's authority over, but not his guilt in sin. That's fascinating. God has authority and he actually uses our sin to accomplish his will, and yet he's not culpable. Let's continue on. Proverbs 16, one of my favorite Proverbs. Proverbs 16 in verse 1, Proverbs 16, fa- frankly, is filled with passages and verses about God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16, 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God has the authority over the results of our plans. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Oh, I love this one. Proverbs 16, 33, the, the lot is cast into the lap. So the lot in the Bible times was a stone that had colors on both sides, a flat stone. And so part of the way that people would determine the will of God was to cast lots. And so whichever color of the stone turned up, that was the decision that they believed the Lord had made. And so what the proverb is saying here is that even in that exercise, what seems like a mundane exercise of, of rolling a dice or rolling a flat stone, the, the end thereof, Proverbs 16, 33, is from the Lord. God has authority over the mundane circumstances of our lives. Proverbs 21, 1. Let this be a encouragement for us as we see the leaders of the world today exercising their authority against God's plans. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't that awesome? No matter who is the president of the United States, no matter who is the governor of our state, no matter who is king, no matter who is queen, no matter who is prime minister, their heart and their every decision is a a stream of water in the hands of the sovereign God of the universe. He is the one who turns their hearts, however he will. This shows God's authority over authority. 
Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And in this, he shows his authority over success and disaster. Matthew 5, verse 45, as we turn to the New Testament, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And this verse shows us that he has authority over seasons and climate. So today, as you're enjoying a 56-degree day in January in Kansas, remember that. Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I get a little chuckle out of that one. This shows us that he has authority over the life of creatures themselves. Acts 2, 23 and 4, 28. I'll tell you, this was one of those passages that I really struggled with as I studied God's sovereignty. I mean, just, just listen to them. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, see, when we're talking about these types of terms, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this is God before the foundation of the world declaring this to be so. And what was it that God predestined before the foundation of the world to be so? You crucified the king of glory. What a fascinating statement. And then Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of God, to do whatever God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Now, at this point, you're beginning to process probably what I was beginning to process when I read verses like this. These verses tell us that God has authority over strategies of man, including sinful strategies. Galatians 1.15, Paul reflects on the days before his birth. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul is recognizing the authority of God over the path of our lives. I'll tell you, I'll jump out of the biblical for just a moment and just speak practically. When, when I got released from professional baseball, my, my dream growing up, everything was aligning and falling into place. And as a 26-year-old, everything seemed to be playing out exactly how I wished it to play out. Thank you, God. What a good God. And then all of it fell apart. What an amazing and practical reminder this was in the, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, in the midst of questions to be reminded of the fact that before I was even born, God laid out my path of life, including being released from professional baseball. And then Revelation 17, 17. 
For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until all the words of God are fulfilled. This shows the authority over man's hearts without removing their accountability. Surely some of these concepts elicit questions. Maybe even some pushbacks in your hearts. Maybe even some what-ifs. And there's certainly value in developing every one of these passages, digging into the context. And there are a myriad of passages that I chose not to have Ben create that could add to the answer to the question, is God sovereign biblically with a resounding yes? My hope is, is that the list of these passages at least establishes that the Bible says God is sovereign. And not a sovereignty that just simply means he looks forward in the corridors of time, sees everything that will play out, and then says, oh yeah, I knew that. God's sovereignty is that he exercises his absolute authority by declaring all the events of human history to play out exactly as you ordained from eternity Now, how does this foundation support our building up of the scenarios of life? See, all of these things are a lot easier to affirm when the scenarios play out positively. All of these scenarios are a lot easier to affirm when you have your fourth child and he or she is healthy. But how does this play out in our lives when we actually turn our attention to real life? And all the blessings and the pain that are a part of that. Well, that brings us to number two. What does it look like practically? And I'm indebted to a systematic theology called, by the title of Christian Theology by Millard Erickson for these six points. The first one is this. God's sovereign activity is universal. God's sovereign activity is universal. What this means is that all matters in life are under his sovereign authority. All of the good, all of the bad, all of the enemies of God, all of the people of God. In fact, let me give you two examples from Scripture. You can study these out on your own, but the nation of Babylon. Just read Habakkuk. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. In fact, I think it is my favorite. God is listening to the valid questions of his prophet Habakkuk, and he responds constantly with answers of his sovereignty. As Habakkuk looks at the wickedness of Israel and says, wait, God, what, why? why? Why are you allowing this to continue? Why are you not interceding? Why are you not backing me up, God? God says, no, 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 listen, I've got this, and I'm actually doing something that you never would dream. I'm actually raising up the wicked nation of the Babylonians to punish Israel. That's God's sovereignty. Then another example from the Old Testament is the pagan king Cyrus. That hundreds of years before he was born, the the prophet actually declares him by name to be used by God to actually bring about God's sovereign plan for his people. God's sovereign activity is universal. And here's the blessing of that, beloved. 
It should cause us to be sensitive and also alert. So that when circumstances happen in our life, especially the unexpected, especially what appears to be accident, especially in our lives what is considered bad or undesirably and undesirable, we should be expectant. We should be excited because what has happened in our lives has been ordained by a sovereign God. His sovereignty is universal. Number two, God's sovereignty is not limited to his own people. What a reminder this is, is that believers are under God's sovereign control, and so are unbelievers. So when that unbeliever at work or school ridicules you, when that boss is unjust biblically, when the Supreme Court makes decisions and legislation is passed that goes directly against God's standards, that's all playing out according to God's sovereignty. Number three, God's sovereignty is always ultimately good. I love this. Listen to what Erickson says. God works for the good. Now, most of us would say, oh, amen. But listen to further how we develop this, sometimes directly bringing it about. Sometimes God's sovereignty plays out in our lives where everybody can nod their head and smile and affirm, that was good. But then sometimes he counters or deflects the efforts of evil human beings toward good. Now it's important for us at this point to to define biblically what does good mean. And it's meant by these two things, God's glory and his will being accomplished. If you want to know what the definition ultimately of good is, it's that God is glorified and ultimately his will is fulfilled. And so in that, we know that God is good all the time. So when we see movies, when we hear statements that God is good all the time, all the time is God God is good, make sure we're defining it biblically, and that is that God is glorified and his will is being accomplished. And when we define it biblically, then we can affirm what Erickson says, and that is God's sovereignty is always, ultimately, good. Remember that, beloved, when the circumstances of your life are not easily identified as good. Number four, God's sovereignty uniquely cares for his own. I love John 10. You know, let let me make a statement that I, I pray you'll hear biblically, not emotionally. God loves everyone with a general love, but he loves his people with a unique love. God so loved the world, general love, that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is a unique expression of love reserved only for those who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John 10 illustrates this so vividly with the good shepherd. The good shepherd and his sheep, there is a unique love that is exchanged between the sheep and their shepherd. The good shepherd makes a wall around his sheep. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. 
The good shepherd is the door exercising his sovereignty. Nobody can come through the door unless he ordains it. Nobody can go out unless God ordains it. What a good shepherd. God's sovereignty uniquely cares for his own. And then number five, God's sovereignty doesn't remove responsibility. I love this. See, this, this is the tension. This is usually where people go when, when a definition, like I had the team put up on the screen of God declaring before the foundation of the world all the things that would take place, and it plays out according to his perfect plan. Immediately we go to the questions of, well, what about human responsibility? What about free will? And what I would submit to you is we do have a will that is free by God's definition, not by ours. See, when we say we have a free will, we assign our understanding, our definition of free. It's unbridled free. I can do whatever I want. And that's not what the Bible says free will is. The Bible says free will is we make decisions according to our nature that play out according to God's perfect and sovereign plan. But here's the beautiful reality is that that God's predestined plan for our lives and for human history includes the activity of man. That's how we resolve prayer. If you think about God's sovereignty, then why should we pray? I mean, why do we make requests of God if he's ordained all of the circumstances to play out according to his perfect plan, then why pray? First of all, because God commands it. Second of all, because it's an exercise to align our wills to his. But then third of all, he actually uses our prayers to accomplish his sovereign purposes. How awesome is that? How about evangelism? A lot of times people will hear a message like this or hear about predestination and say, well, then why evangelize? Well, again, that question is flowing out of scenarios And not a starting point of the word. We evangelize because the same thing as prayer. God ordained it and he commands it. It's a privilege and an exercise that's as much for us as it is for the people we're evangelizing. And because God in his sovereign grace and pleasure has ordained that it is our evangelism that will lead others to Christ. And then how about sin? Sin plays out for the accomplishment of God's glory and the fulfillment of his will and yet leaves the sinner responsible. Now, how do we resolve that? Join me in spending the rest of our lives studying scripture to answer that question. But the fact of the matter is that God's word says that God's sovereignty doesn't remove responsibility. So let that energize us. Let that encourage us and let it convict us. Number six, God's sovereignty is absolute. Listen to what Erickson says. God alone determines his plan and knows the significance of his actions. Isn't that interesting? You know, I I preached at an HCA, Heritage Christian Academy Chapel, several years ago, and did an exercise that I haven't been allowed to do since. <laughs> and that was open question and answer. <laughs> and those students came up with some great questions. One of the questions they asked is, wait a minute, if God ordained that sin would be in the world, well, why did he create 
the Garden of Eden and creation the way that he did? Good question. Don't have all the answers, but I have a starting point. The starting point is that God did. The starting point is that if we would not have sin in this world, we would not understand grace, would we? If we did not have sin in this world, we would not understand judgment. If we did not have sin in this world, we would not need a Savior. And so all of those attributes of God's character are most vividly on display because of sin. And, and why and would I have done it that way? I don't, probably not, but that's why I'm not God. And so even in the, the tension of the wrestling with the ramifications of that, we go back to his character. And that, that's the quote that I want the team to put up on the screen. This is where our efforts and desires for answers are intended to be ultimately satisfied in the character of the who that ordained the actions. That's the exercise of all of this. It is intended to leave us in a tension. It is intended to leave us without answers. Because we are finite and God is infinite. Because we are his creation, he is the creator. It is intended to leave us in attention. But here's the, the reality. I think too many human beings release the tension before God intends us to. And they start realizing this tension and they don't feel comfortable with it. And they're starting to do experience the pain of, of our finiteness. And they just kind of throw up their hands and be like, well, it's a mystery, it's God. There's too many passages, beloved, and too many examples from Genesis to Revelation of God's sovereignty to throw up our hands too early. Spend the rest of your lives leaning into this. Because if you do, this is the last point, if this is our biblical foundation, it will not keep us from pain or answer all of our questions. That's not the point of this message. But it will provide a rock on which our reality can be built so that the storms of life will not topple the house. Beloved, I'm looking out on faces of people that I love. I know some of you more than I know others. I have a love for you because you're image bearers. I have a love for you because by your being here, I believe that you're at least giving evidence that you're interested in God or that you're professing that you're a follower of Christ. And I am excited about that. But I know because I've lived life, because I've studied the word of God, that you all will experience pain. I don't know what that'll look like. I don't know when it'll happen. But this message is intended to give you tools so that you don't derail. Experience pain, yes. Experience sobbing, sometimes uncontrollable, yes. Experience times where you're asking questions of God, absolutely, that's the reality of our humanity. But if we can arrive at a place where we know that God is sovereign biblically, it provides the foundation for us so that no matter what happens in your life, you will not be derailed because you're anchored deeply in this God.